0: Hey, I'm Duncan Sheik, and you're listening to Life Minute TV. Well, I know what you see it all too clear
1: for more than 25 years duncan Sheik has been contributing his musical gifts to the world his broad repertoire includes pop hits such as his 1996 top 20 barely breathing and his musical smash spring awakening which won eight tony awards and a grammy his first solo project since 2015's ledger domain the practicing buddhist dug deep into his faith for his latest claptrap his ninth studio album. It explores the concept of non-duality, which helped him deepen his own understanding of life. The artist and local New Yorker biked over to the Life Minute studios to tell us all about his latest music, what else he's been up to, including his most important role as husband and dad, to a three-year-old daughter. This is a Life Minute with Duncan Sheik.
0: In the middle of the night, well, I never said I was perfect. Well, you know, I've been a practicing Buddhist for a little over 30 years, and I have sort of dealt with some Buddhist ideas in some implicit ways, you know, in various records that I've made, um, but not, not really that explicitly. And I sort of dived into this one sort of particular aspect of Buddhism that's called non-duality. Um, and it, you actually, you find it in other religions as well. There's a stream of it in, in Islam and Judaism and, and even Christianity. It's a sort of a, a, a way of looking, at, uh, of looking at reality and your place in the world as a human being that um, offers a lot of um, sort of contentment and it really helped me sort of deepen my understanding of like, okay, what am I doing as a, you know, 50 something year old artist in this modern world and how can I function here in a way that makes sense um, and in a way where I can be happy in a world that's seemingly like a little bit gone crazy, so. (laughs) Well, claptrap is just sort of a word that denotes like a bunch of like verbal nonsense that somebody might spout off, which is sort of my self-deprecating way of talking about you know how a lot of these lyrics might sound to certain people who aren't that familiar with ideas of non-duality and and buddhism and advaita vedanta so yeah so it was just a a a little bit of an inside joke so the first single um it's called experience and it was sort of you know it was the first song where i actually finally got some lyrics done. I had, you know, when the pandemic hit, uh, I I had a lot of theater projects that were put on hold and and sort of uh, performance, you know, I had a tour set up and that was obviously put on hold. And so I had some time on my hands um, and I just started writing and recording some music without a very specific sense of what it would turn into. And then a few months later, I had a whole, I had maybe 50 or 60 pieces of music and no lyrics. And then I I finally sort of came up with this lyric that was a little bit sort of about the spiritual path that I was on at that particular moment. Um, And it sort of set the tone and sort of gave me a thematic underpinning for what the whole record would be about. Um, so that's experience, it's kind of like the start of the journey. Um, maybe, it's sort of like the midpoint through that journey where I was sort of having a little bit of a mini existential crisis, uh, sort of the year before the pandemic hit actually. And then the pandemic hit and, and, you know, I think like a lot of people there, there was a, a definite silver lining and a sort of a mixed blessing to what happened during the pandemic. and it gave me an opportunity to sort of rethink some things and and sort of relook at why i was making art how i was making art what it's meant to accomplish and so in sort of in the middle of that process um i had this like feeling of like ah like all the clouds lifted and actually everything's going to be all right and life is actually pretty good and i have an amazing three-year-old daughter and an amazing wife and and actually a pretty great life in New York City as an artist. So there was a lot, you know, I I hate just using that term like, oh, I have such gratitude because it's a real cliche, but I did have a moment of legitimate appreciation for what was going on. Um, And that song maybe sort of came out of that. And then um, something's happening here. Uh, it was sort of really, actually, that's the last song on, uh, on the record that I wrote. And it's, again, this is a little bit of, a, of an abstract concept that it's, that it's talking about. Um, but it's sort of the idea that, you know, that we, as human beings, we have this sort of default mode where we think we have sort of total agency and free will and control over what happens in our life, and we're therefore completely responsible for everything that happens in our life. And I think that, to a great extent, uh, if you can understand that that you have a lot less agency, maybe than you think you do, and a lot less control over a lot of things that happen, um, then what comes out of that realization is that you know you're. You sort of blame yourself less, you feel less guilt, you blame other people less, you feel less anger. Um, There's sort of less pride about what you do, and pride can sort of get you in trouble. Um, And you have less uh, sort of attachment to outcomes and less worry and anxiety about stuff. And so it's a song that sort of, you know, in a hopefully short and poetic and concise way expresses that, that idea. When I'm writing music for, like, my own records, it's, it's, yeah, it's pretty much always music first and then I sort of graft lyrics onto that music, you know, if and when some idea strikes me. I mean, it's, writing lyrics is a much more painstaking process for me, um, whereas the music sort of happens pretty naturally and, and there's, you know. I can sit there and record stuff all day long. There's almost sort of too much, and I need to be really editing that down and, and sort of filtering out the nonsense. But yeah, lyrics take longer for me, so that's why you know when I'm working on theater projects, I it's great working with a lyricist because that sort of speeds speeds the whole thing up. Yeah, I go see a lot of art. You know, like I'm so lucky to live where I live here in Manhattan and, you know, within a 20, 30 block radius uh, is MoMA and the Guggenheim and the Met and the Whitney, it's not too far away. So w- weirdly these days, visual arts is, is, is very inspiring to me just because, you know, I think just listening to pop music or, or alternative music or art music, whatever, that that's great, but in a way um, it, it can be, it can be sort of problematic for for, for my process because um, then you know I start like comparing what I'm doing to other people, and you know is this cool enough or is this like relevant enough? And that's a, not a that's a very useless sort of mindset to be in. So I think you know if I'm looking at things within other mediums, certainly visual arts, obviously you know film, uh, and even you know there's a lot of great TV out there. Um, uh, so things like that, and then of course you know books, literature. You know, I feel like I, I haven't been reading enough the past. You know, um, and it's actually the the books that sort of give you more good information. So um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna start restocking my library. <laughs> I, you know, I started playing guitar when I was five, and uh, and playing keyboards not too long after that, and. I got really into sort of the technology of music at a pretty young age. You know, first it was sort of guitar foot pedals and different amps and different electric guitars. And then it was, you know, Synthesizers, monophonic synthesizers, and and then drum machines, and then polyphonic synthesizers. And I got my first four-track recorder, you know, when I was 14. So I was always into the sort of technology side of it. You know, my sight reading and stuff to this day is terrible. You know, I mean, I can sort of read music, but it's a joke. Um, uh, and my theory is pretty good because I took some theory classes in high school and college. Um, but uh, for me it was always just a more like intuitive process of of just being in the studio or being with an instrument and sort of coming up with something that um, that had some you know real emotional affect to it yeah I'll, I'll try and give you the short version i mean i went through i went through a sort of a big prog rock phase when i was in my you know as like i got a copy of Yes, Fragile when I was six years old, which is a pretty arty, proggy record. Um, and I and I and so I was really into that stuff, um, Yes and Genesis and Peter Gabriel and Rush, you know, and then even some things that are more sort of silly than that. And then I think when I turned 14, 15, 16, that sort of moved over into more, Art rock territory, so things like Roxy Music and and then some more electronic music, Depeche Mode and New Order and Psychedelic Furs and Tears for Fears, a lot of English bands from the sort of mid to late 80s, and then really my biggest influences are things like the the late Talk Talk records, Laughing Stock and Spirit of Eden. Laughingstock, that record is sort of like a, you know, that, that's where I got this idea of claptrap. It's sort of a little bit of an oblique reference to Laughingstock. But, um, uh, and then uh, there was a band called Japan. They were pretty big in England, but sort of obscure in America. And their lead singer was this guy David Sylvian, very big fan of him. Uh, and then like the four AD bands, Cocktail Twins, Dead Can Dance, This Mortal Coil, that, you know, it was that set of mostly English and some European stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think Billie Eilish is amazing. I I mean, I think her new record is great. A lot of her records are great. Um, There's some very, again, maybe slightly obscure British bands like Sleaford Mods that I think are really cool. Uh, I saw Sigur the other night at the Beacon Theater, that was great. Um, you know, I continue to be a huge fan of Radiohead and their their sort of new band, The Smile, I think is genius. You know, I continue to be a fan of Bjork, you know, looking forward to her ne- next record, whatever that's gonna be. There's a couple other bands, I, I'll just throw them out there. The Wild Beasts, which unfortunately they broke up recently, but I think they're a great band. Um, Midlake is a really cool band from Texas, Denton, Texas. that just put out a new record that I really like. So, yeah, I mean, again, it's mostly alternative stuff, but I guess like the big pop artist that I really like is Billie Eilish. I am barely breathing, I can't find the air. You know, at the time I wrote it, you know, I was in one of those, um, like legit sort of emotional crisis with a an erstwhile girlfriend who you know, I mean, it was like a lot of songs that I wrote at that time. It was like, oh, you know, there's this girl who doesn't like me anymore, and I'm gonna write a song about it. And I think that's what you do when you're in your 20s, and it's like, dear diary, you know, and you just write. And and why it does resonate is probably because a lot of people relate to that feeling. But you know, once you've been doing this for 25 plus years, um, you need to sort of find other things to write about. I mean. I think it's great if you can write an amazing sort of love song or unrequited love song, um, but it maybe would feel a little inappropriate for me at this point. (laughs) I think a lot of the evolution came from the fact that I inadvertently ended up working in the theater and composing music for plays and musicals. Um, So it sort of broadened the palette in a way. That I didn't expect. you know, famously, I had a sort of uh, dim view of musical theater leading up to, you know uh, the year two thousand. and I, I was it just wasn't a a genre that I was that excited about um or into. and and I didn't feel any kinship with a lot of the music that was like on Broadway at that time. Um, you know, obviously, I liked some Gershwin stuff, and I liked some Sondheim stuff, and, you know, that's really part of the classic American songbook. So I'm not saying that, you know, that, that I didn't appreciate any of it. But it was a stretch for me to get involved in Spring Awakening in the initial part of the process. And then, you know, once I did and I sort of opened myself up to, to that approach and that aesthetic, Um, And also just this idea of where you're not writing about stuff that's just coming from your own subjectivity, you're sort of writing music for other characters and other personalities and this sort of other narrative that's not the narrative of your own life. You know, it does widen the aperture uh, in a way that has been um, really fulfilling and, and I'm I'm very, <laughs> you know, after my initial resistance to it, I'm really glad, uh, really happy to be involved in the theater. And, and those are, you know, certainly some of my most enjoyable creative processes are, are with other writers and directors and choreographers and set designers and lighting designers. You know, that's that's very fun stuff to be involved with. I started talking to Steven about it, let's say, it was really the year 2000. Um, and then we we were at the Atlantic Theater in two thousand six, and actually we were on Broadway, you know, by the end of two thousand six. So it was a good seven years. Yeah. Well, again, you know, initially Steven Sater, my writing partner, you know, it was very much his idea and his conception, and along with Michael Mayer, who, you know, was the director, really from the very beginning, and so. You know, luckily I I had Michael's long experience as a a director of musicals and and plays, and Stephen's, you know, sort of the raw material of Stephen's lyrics and Stephen's scenes. Um, And, you know, I just sort of naively and (laughs) blithely (laughs) jumped into the process. and, And, you know, I think my contribution was saying, well, you know, the music that I'm interested in these days is you know, I like Jeff Buckley records, and Bjork records, and Radiohead records, and I'm interested in Arvo Pert, and some 20th century classical music, you know, Steve Reich and and John Adams, and Philip Glass, and uh, and I really like some folk artists like Nick Drake and John Martin. So, my contribution was just offering into the soup this probably very different set of influences. Um, that that came into um, inspiring the the music of spring awakening yeah that was a fun night and um, it was nice to to actually win a Grammy. I had been nominated one like a decade earlier so it's nice to have it that's sort of what i was saying before about pride you know you can get sort of very like oh you know i've won grammys and tonys and isn't that awesome there's more of a problem with that than people think because the truth is what matters is is the connection that the art has with the audience and so you got to sort of keep sight on that and not worry about the you know, the trappings, nice as they are. I was surprised when it started to work because there were many times in the initial um, few years of working on it. We did several workshops, you know, at Sundance and two workshops with the Roundabout Theater. And during those processes, I I was like, ugh, this might really be truly awful, like this might be the worst thing I've ever been involved with. Um, and so, you know, I, I had to sort of be convinced that no, just, you know, be patient and let it come together in in the way that it's supposed to. And luckily, you know, by the time we were in rehearsals at The Atlantic and, you know, we, we had Bill T. Jones, amazing choreography, and, and uh, we had, you know, the amazing costumes and lighting, and sets were how they looked and, um, you know, I, I remember there was a moment there where I was like, okay, this is, looks like this might work, so that was good. They're now like the same age that I was when I was working with them on the show, which is sort of interesting, you know, having hung out with them recently. But, you know, I was like 35, 36, and they were sort of like in their late teens and early 20s. And, you know, I I was this weird thing where I was like a little bit in between. Like I didn't quite feel like I was one of the adults in this situation, that's for sure. You know, I obviously wasn't one of of the actors or anything. So um, it was a lot of fun. We had a great time. There was a lot of shenanigans and, and silliness, and a lot of it that I just sort of saw from, from a distance and thought was hilarious. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, those, I love all of those guys, really. It was one of the most amazing you know years of my life, just that, that year of 2006, 2007, going to Broadway. It was a, definitely a lovely sort of a memory. Yes, we, we did this sort of 15th anniversary performance um, like a one-night-only benefit uh, for Actors' Equity, actually. And that, I think, was really successful. And, I mean, it was like, sort of like they never left the show. I mean, I was really impressed with how great the perfor- the performance was, and, and the band as well. We had the original band. So, that was all really cool. And, you know, sp- Little spoiler alert: uh, We may be we're trying to release the, the the record of that of that show, so that may be coming soon if the stars align. Um, so so that was really fun. Yeah, it's been a very long and winding road, and it's you know nothing is nothing's going into production next week, but the gears are are moving in the background for sure. Yeah. You know after going through the process of spring awakening and developing a few other shows with steven Sater, and then with some other writers you know the process becomes a little more familiar and i'd like to think you know you, you one gets sort of better at it just in terms of understanding the mechanics of how all this works but there is you know there's obviously something about just jumping into a medium with a completely fresh perspective, as Stephen and I did with *Spring Awakening*, and you know, you never quite get that back again. So, um, so I think while like technically some things that I'm doing are you know kind of better, it's like it doesn't matter. You just need to find the magic where all the all the different aspects of the show coalesce, and it works. I mean, musical theater is the most difficult medium, I think, of any medium out there. Um, period full stop. It is just the hardest thing to get right. Cause there's just there's no other medium that has that many elements. And there's no other medium that has to like work every night, you know, for eight or nine hundred shows or a thousand night you know, however long a show runs for. You know, once you make a movie, it's just the movie's done, you know, or make a record, the record's done. T V show, same thing. But musical it has all the elements that a movie has, or you know, and but it has to like run over time <laughs> forever. Uh, so it's it's hard to get that right. I, honestly, I have great um, relationships with, you know, Rupert Gould, who directed American Psycho and directed Spring Awakening recently at the Almeida. He's an incredible director. I recently had the great pleasure to work with Darko Tresnak. Um who uh, directed the show of mine called Noir, which we just did down in Houston. And Darko, you might know, he he directed Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder and really, really intelligent and wonderful and unique creative person. I haven't really collaborated with a lot of, you know, sort of well-known musicians. The, The guitar player who I've spent a lot of time with, his name is Jerry Leonard. And he's played with myself and Suzanne Vega and Rufus Wainwright, and he was David Bowie's music director for a while. So Jerry and I have had a, a great collaboration over the years. Doug Yole, my drummer, who I've worked with for you know, 20 years now, that's a great collaboration. You know, for better or worse, in the, in the kind of alternative music community, such as it is. It's not like in the hip hop world or the pop world where like everybody's always like calling each other up like, come in and spit a verse. You know, it's just not like that. So I have my sort of coterie of, of folks that I work with that I love. Um, you know, Katherine Gallagher and Jen Damiano both sang on Claptrap, which was really great to have them. You know, they're incredible singers. I've got my peeps, I guess. <laughs> Probably there's there are like some jazz musicians that I'd like to work with. The the guitarist Bill Frizzell played on Phantom Moon. It would be really fun to work with him again. Um, you know, it would be fun to work with somebody like Herbie Hancock, who I know a little bit through the sort of Buddhist community. You know, Wayne Shorter, p- people like that uh, would be really cool to work with. It's not like I'm you know, necessarily um, trying to, you know, jump in on the next pop record or anything like that. It's, it's just not where my head sort of goes. <laughs> oh, my daughter, you know, she's this amazing little three and a half year old ball of energy and excitement and she's, you know, into everything, obviously music stuff, but sports stuff and she's the real smarty pants and she is hilarious <laughs> and awesome. So yeah, that's maybe the one sort of legitimately good thing that I pulled off. Well, it's tricky because, um, you know, no matter what, having a a three-and-a-half-year-old daughter is is intense, and and my wife has, you know, she's got an amazing career of her own, Um, so I often find myself in the weird situation of being like, you know, I have like 17 random errands to do and there's no way I'm even gonna get like 90 minutes in the studio to try and record this song or make this mix or record this vocal, whatever it is. So it's that is the hardest thing right now, It's just um, actually trying to create time to just have quiet time and to work in the studio. I have sort of a studio set up in my, in my place here in New York. You know, getting people to kind of leave me alone for a couple hours, that's the trick, you know, not so easy. I'm a tennis player, actually, so I like to play tennis. You know, I ride the bike around New York and I like I came here on the bike today. I, you know, I'm a culture person. Like I said, you know, I go to see a lot of art. Um, I probably don't see enough. I should go see more theater. I'm sort of naughty about that. I'm not quite sure why. Subconsciously, I I still have some issue there. So I, I should probably go see more plays and more musicals. It's nice that you can actually go see a movie now again, um, and I try not to watch too much TV unless it's like decent TV. Um, and then yeah, I have a, like a little bit of a bad YouTube addiction, but it's very obscure stuff that I'm looking at on YouTube. So I try not to look at the mindless stuff, although it creeps in there too sometimes, inevitably. I still have sort of some desire to to do some visual art stuff myself and I do like a little bit of it and I've got some friends who are really great kind of contemporary artists um, and really talented and so I'm always bugging them about coming to their studio and you know collaborating with them maybe or just working on some stuff and having some guidance so yeah I think visual arts is something I'd like to do more of I, it's a terrible cliche of like musicians who start like painting, um, and I promise I won't annoy too many people with it. i have sort of more multimedia stuff, you know, just working with different. You know, I did some, I did some lithography recently. That's really cool. But I enjoyed that process a lot, and um, but I have some ideas about doing some sound art things that are kind of like little mini installations that involve both visual and sonic elements so yeah we'll see if i get around with all my free time if i get around to doing that stuff you know you need to find whatever it is that you are subjectively the most excited about and i think it's it's mostly a fool's errand to second guess what an audience might like and it's really a fool's errand to do stuff that you're not that into but you just, well, I have to do this because this is like what's popular right now or hip right now or, you know, that that's the kiss of death, I think. Then you can be into pop music and that's fine, you know, and if what you're truly psyched about is just making total sort of top 40 bangers or whatever, then you, you should do that, but you should find a unique way to do that that's completely your own. It's artistically satisfying and it's satisfying to the listener, you know, because I think the audience always knows if, if you're doing something cynically or if you're doing it because it's something you truly want to express, you truly feel great about it. And, and you know, for me personally, it's like what I'm interested in is maybe a little more enigmatic and mysterious than some other people. That's just my taste. But I'm always gonna be hoping for, for other young artists to do stuff that's just completely out of the box and different and weird and cool and exciting You know, that's, you know, I did a couple semesters of, I was like an artist in residence at at NYU Tisch at the Clive Davis School of Music. And, you know, and a lot of those kids were incredible um, artists in their own right, you know, sort of budding artists in their own right. But the things that really got me excited were when it was just, it sounded like nothing else I'd ever heard before. And that's what I tried to encourage them to, to do. You know, I've been a Buddhist for over 30 years and I chant Nam-myoho-renge-kyo. And so, you know, for people out there who are interested in Buddhism or any kind of like spiritual practice, um, I think chanting is is truly amazing and profound and powerful and uh, yeah, you should chant Nam-myoho-renge-kyo. <laughs> so uh, Secret Life of Bees is, uh, is gonna Come to the Almeida Theatre in London uh, next spring. We have a, a new director, Whitney White, who is involved in that, and she's just been so great to work with. And I'm really excited about this new production. And you know, Lynn Nottage and Susan Birkenhead continued to be my co-writers on that piece. You know, it's actually going to be really interesting to do it with an with an English cast. You know, because it's a very American story you know, that I'm sort of fascinated <laughs> by what's going to happen in that um, scenario. And uh, the show that I just did in Houston, the show noir that I did with my my friend Kyle Jarrow and, and Darko Tresnak, Um we're hoping to bring that to New York sooner than later. Oh, you know, workshop for that at the end of this year. And we'll see if, you know, if there's the right theater in New York for that. Um, and then, you know, got to figure out sometime to maybe do some shows for Claptrap, it's a hard record to tour because um, it really kind of needs at least six musicians to do it right. It's a little bit of a complicated record, so you know, I'm trying to figure out how to how to put all the pieces together for that. So yeah. I'm just again, you know, very appreciative that I do have a few. Theater things that are nicely in development, and it's nice to make a record again. Ledger Domain came out in 2015, so I didn't even realize it, but you know, it had sort of been seven years since I made a record. So I'm sort of really enjoying, you know, just making Dunkin' Cheek records again, and hopefully it will not be another seven years before I do the next one. But um, I'm just sort of back into the process of like, you know, just writing. what i refer to as like sort of arty weird pop songs um so yeah
1: to see more of this interview visit our website lifeminute.tv and don't forget to subscribe to our podcast life minute tv